When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Her Hoop Stats fans, welcome to another episode of Her Hoop Stats Unplugged with Megan Gower. We're back from a one-week hiatus. Thanks for bearing with us. Um, and it's been another interesting weekend, women's basketball, things heating up as we're approaching the end of the regular season in NCAA women's hoops. And March is just a month around the corner now because it is February. Um, lots to talk about this week. We released our um, top 10 mid-major of the year player of the award finalists so we're going to discuss that as well as the big Monday UConn-Oregon game that happened this past Monday and the selection committee's top 16 re- seed reveal so lots to discuss and without further ado I'm joined this week by our Hoop Stats team member Jacob Mox. Hey Jacob how's it going? Doing pretty good how about you? Doing well um, and Jacob just released the semifinalist finalist list for our Becky Hammond uh, Mid-Major Player of the Year Award this week. So that's pretty exciting. Excited to have Becky's name on that award. But do you want to talk a little bit about you know, the semifinalist list of players? Yeah. So the process of narrowing down um, from the 3,000-some mid-major players in the country down to about like 20 that were in kind of high consideration and then eventually down to the 10 semifinalists. Um, It was a difficult process because there were so many just good players that we had to like let go of players who had been on previous watch lists that were, that are still so good, but just the bar is so high. Um, Among the semifinalists, uh, there are, Four players averaging 20 or more points per game, including Stella Johnson, who's the nation's leading scorer. As of now, um, at Ryder, she's scoring about 25 points a game. Um, but really, beyond scoring, just like scoring efficiency, a lot of good rebounders, a lot of good uh, playmakers on the list, too. Just a nice variety of skills and contributions on the court. Yeah, definitely. Um, I must imagine it must be very difficult to narrow down kind of that big list of players to just ten names. Um, so I don't envy you for having to do that or anyone else yeah, having to mean, do that for awards. <laughs> there were times where I had to step away from it and just like hand the players' pages to someone else and have them look at them because I'm just so like inside looking at these players that like 
like you, you get like attached to a player because you see these awesome stats and stuff for so long, and then oh, now I have to cut, I have to cut it down to just ten players out of three thousand. Um, and yeah, it's difficult at times. Um, it's good to get some outside counsel on some players where it's basically splitting hairs uh, between some players where they're very similar players, and it might come down to one player maybe performed better in bigger games compared to the other player. And yeah, just kind of weighing all those different values, valuing uh, contributions on the court differently. It's, yeah, it's, it's a much trickier process than I expected. Um, And it won't get easier when I have to cut it down to five in about a month. So. Yeah. What do you be looking for from these like 10 players and anyone else that might've, you know, just missed this list for the, to make that final list of finalists yeah so really what i was looking for is basically everyone on this list is a scorer of some sort there are a couple volume scorers who shoot a lot of threes and there are some efficiency scorers who shoot a lot of twos but are in the top like like upper reaches of the nation when it comes to points per scoring attempt um up there that is sarah ryan at drake She's, I want to say, top 10, top 7-ish in points per scoring attempt. Ciara Duffy uh, has a 1.23 at uh, South Dakota, and she's top 5% in the nation and is a walking, like, 17-point game just night in, night out. Um, She also adds rebounding and assists and doesn't turn the ball over. So really, it's just, like, efficiency across the board, like, you can sacrifice efficiency for like outrageous scoring numbers a little bit, um, but like you don't want to swing too far where you're scoring like 25 points per game, but you're only like you're shooting the ball like 50 times, like kind of finding that balance and the rebounding and the assists and the steals and the blocks that kind of uh, round out each player's game. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Imagine similar things to what people are looking at for kind of the other player of the year awards that will be coming up soon too. Right. And one of the things I found that's tricky about it is comparing across positions. So like I know the hoop hall, they have their starting five awards, the awards they give out to like the best player at each position. And I imagine those are probably easier to look at because you're looking at, Oh, these are point guards. So I'm going to value efficient scoring and assist without turnovers. But if you're looking at a forward, you might look more at um, at like inside scoring, rebounds, and blocks. Um, so the the scale is a little bit different depending on what that player's role is, and kind of having them lumped onto one group definitely mur- muddies the water a little bit. Oh yeah, I could imagine. It's so hard to look at you know compare two players that do two totally different things on the court. Um, like you right. can only compare the numbers so much. Yeah, and there are players who on paper might even look very similar. Um, like you might have two players who are both averaging about a point per scoring attempt, but one of them is shooting 50% on twos and the other one is, shoot, is shooting like 15 threes a game and is making like 30% of them. So Right. Yeah, very different kind of games, even though yeah. they look similar by the numbers. Yeah, so definitely difficult to narrow down that list, but we've definitely seen we've seen a lot of teams kind of posting that they're excited to see their players on this list. So that's definitely awesome to see. Any thoughts on kind of how the teams have been interacting with the award, especially now that Becky Hammond's name's on it? Yeah, um, yeah. First of all, getting uh, Coach Hammond to lend her name to the award was huge. That was very exciting. Uh, she's a legend and. She represents like everything about mid-major spirit of maybe not always being seen as like the best, but going out and working hard and proving that you are. Um, but yeah, in terms of like team uh, engagement with the release and all that, um, we had much higher engagement than the 15-player midseason list. Um, I think we have maybe like half the teams interact, either writing releases of their own or helping promote our content. But this time around, we reached out to the teams and we also reached out to the conferences. And between the 10 teams and nine conferences represented 18 of them were actually like 
fairly engaged in either writing their own releases, like I said, or promoting our content or like conferences, like hyping up the team's uh, content. And that's what we like to see is spreading the recognition around and making sure that these just outstanding players get the recognition that they deserve. Yeah, that's definitely awesome to see. There's a lot of names on this list that even though their stats are so amazing, you won't kind of see on those final big player of the year awards from, you know, the Naismith and such. So definitely right. good to see them get that recognition here and um, to see the teams and the conferences promoting it so that they yeah. get that attention. Absolutely. And yeah, we're just hoping that that enthusiasm keeps up. Um, we have stuff later in the season. Um, we're going to do some more like involved marketing of it sort of um i've kind of molded the idea of like a fan vote with the final five because i know that the some other major awards will do stuff like that and um also the potential for more like individual player like graphics and stuff to highlight each individual player instead of lumping them all together into one release which i'm excited about awesome looking forward to seeing that stuff from you as the season winds down in the next yeah, like, and few months. Before we move on, just uh, in the same vein, sort of a plug for the newsletter, which if you subscribe to the newsletter, you will not miss out on any of the award updates um, as you'll get them earlier than, uh, slightly, slightly earlier than the public. Um, and just obviously all the other great content that everyone else is writing. Yeah, definitely. Good thing to plug the newsletter and it's free. So all it is is putting your email in and then you get all of our kind of major content straight to your inbox in the day. So definitely sign up if you haven't. So talking some more about big things that happened this week in addition to the release of this um, watch list, we also had a big Monday game with Oregon and UConn. Um, The Ducks were up in stores, Connecticut, for that like top five matchup i was actually in stores so i got to watch it in person i'm assuming you probably watched it on tv yeah i watched it during my night class that i had to go to um i mean i guess it wasn't as close as i expected it to be so it wasn't like a huge deal to not be 100 percent focused towards the end of the game but even in games that aren't that close the stat watching is entertaining enough. Um, I'm really big into like, like achievement stats and stuff like that stuff that hasn't been accomplished before. And one of the things I'm always looking for when I watch Oregon games is teammates with triple doubles. Cause it's never happened before. And with UNESCO, Ebert and Sabali, like they're all threats to do that at any given game, mostly UNESCO obviously, but Sabali and Ebert have shown flashes and come close and I, I I'm just like enthralled by like individual stat achievements and team stat achievements and that kind of takes over in games that aren't nearly as uh, close as expected yeah definitely and Sabrina was almost there on yeah. the I think she was like a assist and a rebound short so right. yeah she, yep yeah one of each she was away and uh, Savali was six assists, which it was not that close, but she had two or three at halftime, I think. So there was a chance for a while that that was in play. Yeah. So, oh, I was just going to ask you, so you were there. What was the environment like? We kind of talked about this in the, in the Slack about, uh, their choice to have it at Gamble instead of, uh, um, at XL. Yeah, so UConn plays half their games at Gamble, which is on campus for people that don't know, and then half at the Excel Center, which is in downtown Hartford. So about a half hour from um, campus. I mean, I think a lot of times some of the bigger games are at Gamble, and I don't think that's an accident. As someone that like went to school there and still likes to go to games as a fan occasionally, like the environment in Gamble is just so much better. It's a smaller arena. So you can't hold as many people as the Excel Center, which you might have gotten kind of for a big game like that. You could have sold more tickets. But it's a smaller environment. You're going to have a packed student section, which is going to be loud. 
um they pretty much like one of the end zones is like or end line sections is like full of students from like the first row next to the court all the way to the top of the building um so a huge student section um the building is just it gets really loud a lot quicker than something huge like the excel center gets loud so it's just a more fun i think environment for people to kind of watch those major games yeah um i mean yeah the smaller arena i think you're right it it seems like it should like it the sound i can't quite like put it into words but like you see it on like places like assembly hall in the men's game where it's smaller and just it the crowd is a little more raucous because people are packed in and it's at capacity and the energy just changes yeah totally agree with that i don't think there's like many buildings that are probably harder to play in than a sold out gamble so yeah i mean that ended a 66 game streak right what was that sorry that, that ended a 66 game winning streak yeah so, something crazy like that i yeah. can't keep of all the streaks anymore but yeah the baylor yeah. one was the end of the home winning streak and then that was the largest loss in gamble ever um oh wow so. i didn't even notice that yeah huh. so another end of a yukon streak um here but yeah huge props to Oregon obviously for pulling off that kind of upset in or uh, not really an upset I think they should have been favored to win anyway but that type of win yeah. in, uh in Gamble when it's sold out like that pretty impressive and I believe it was their first like program's first all-time win on the road against a top five team yeah I think so and then obviously program first win over UConn um they haven't played UConn since what was it I think it was INSQ and Hebert's freshman year. They played in the NCAA tournament. Oh, yeah, that's right. Bridgeport, but um, Oregon was just getting started then, I think. And now, obviously, at the top of their game. Um, But so, yeah, a huge win for them um, on the road. And then kind of, I mean, I think everyone kind of knew that UConn wasn't the UConn team of years past this year. But in case anyone was still on the fence about that, I think it definitely showed. on Monday night. Definitely, yeah. So from the results of that game, um, which they... So the NCAA, the selection committee, or I think it's the selection committee releases it, their top 16 seeds, kind of mid to late season, they released them, and they released them at halftime of the game. Is that correct? Yes, it was halftime. And... It's it's interesting that they do it then um, because obviously, like especially at halftime of such a huge game that had huge implications and shifted teams around. But at the same time, when else are they going to do it? Like that's the biggest. Uh, that's one of the bigger audiences they're going to have all season on uh, a, like a nationally televised game. So like it's kind of a trade off between. <laughs> a safe release date and like the most impactful release date. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they did release it at halftime. So like okay. take it for what it's worth, I guess at this point, because obviously that game shakes it up, but I think it's still, you can still kind of gather a lot about their thoughts of where different teams stand um, from that kind of release. And granted things will shake up more because there's still plenty of big games to be played with the Pac-12 and then UConn's at South Carolina this coming Monday. Um, So, and there's a bunch of big 10 teams on there as well. So lots of time for things to get shaken up much more. And it was interesting that even going into the game, they already had Oregon ranked higher than UConn, which I don't think a lot of people expected really. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at their resume going into the game, it makes sense. But like based on AP poll voting, um, I don't think that was what was really expected. Yeah, to me, it made sense. I think Oregon has played more um, harder teams, even though they've you know lost um, two games versus UConn, just one to Baylor. Um, They've still played a Oregon has still played a harder strength with the schedule, and I think you saw that last year that the committee really does not favor UConn's current conference schedule, which is 
extremely right. weak. Um, so I don't think it was all too surprising to see that, um, especially knowing that you know their slated games coming up outside of this that Oregon one and the South Carolina one is all American Conference games. Yeah, which yeah. doesn't really do them any favors. So, yeah, that's definitely kind of to their disadvantage once it does get to conference season because they have those like one-off games where they play non-conference like the last Monday and this coming Monday. Um, but outside of those games, like there's not a lot of potential for them to move up other than facing like a top 10 team like South Carolina. So. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that'll change obviously next year once they're back in the big East, but for this year, yep. it's the Americans. So um, yeah. So they were at fifth before the game I don't know if that mean the game could drop them I could see them dropping below Stanford from that loss I don't really see them going much farther down than that in my yeah opinion. I had them drop below Stanford and NC State yeah. um and <clears throat> really the reason I had them drop below NC State um NC State only one loss mm-hmm. which was to North Carolina who is actually surprisingly ranked high um i mean beating nc state will help do that but in our her hope in our her hoop stats automated rating they're actually 27th in the nation which is like very like i had not realized how high they were even ranked and that's their their only loss and obviously their worst loss and then you throw in wins against maryland who's number four in our her hoop stats rating and Florida State was number 19. And both of those were not exactly blowouts, but they weren't terribly close compared to UConn, who obviously their top two losses are against like two of the best teams in the country, but they're by 18 and 16. So, yeah, um, definitely bigger losses. So that makes sense to me for now, at least. I'm sure things will shake up again, but. Right. Um, I think NC State still has to play Louisville in conference play, so that was interesting there. Um, Another thing that was surprising to me was having Maryland on the two-line. They've got, I think, four losses so far this season. I mean, none of them are bad losses, and I kind of think some of the surprising losses off the front, like towards towards, Northwestern, is now Northwestern's a four-seed, so (laughs) not that surprising, but... um, yeah, that one was interesting to me. Yeah. my So I sent in our ballot for the hoop feed poll the other day um, following the Oregon-UConn game. And I had Maryland at 10 at the time. So just a bit outside the, the two line. Um, I had them... Let's see, who do I have? I had them just behind Oregon State and the NCAA poll or uh, the release had them flipped, which I found interesting even. Yeah, I think I would still have Oregon State on that two-line. Um, but I think that one of the – I think Oregon State looks very, very good in the her hoop stats rating, which um, by, like, AP poll, they aren't maybe nearly as high. So I think that depending on where you're looking when you're like comparing teams' resumes, they you can like get a different sense of how the teams stack up, and that can affect teams where the 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 like gap between each team is so narrow. So, right, yeah, and they do have four losses as well, um, but their losses come to you know Stanford, two to Oregon, and then one to Arizona State so I think they're better losses than Maryland which is why I would still have them on that two line but yeah so I had one major gripe with okay. the poll. so I have in front of me the resumes of two teams I'm gonna give you just kind of a breakdown of the resume and I'm gonna ask you who you think should be ranked higher okay so we have one team that has two losses. They're to the 13th and 87th team in the country. They, against top 25 teams in the Hurt Hoop Sets rating, are 4-1, with their one loss being a 26-point loss. Okay. The other team 
has three losses to the three, nine, and 59th ranked teams in the nation, according to the Herb Stats rating. Um, they're against top 25 teams in the rating. They are 0-2 with losses by 2-5. and 5. And their worst losses is to the 59th ranked team in the nation. Now, just based on that, who would you put higher? I'm putting the second one higher. Um, I okay. have a feeling the first one was Stanford. <laughs> oh, it actually was not. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. Then no. I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, so the first team. So first I'm going to say that I would choose the first team, which was UCLA. Okay. Um, and my thinking here is their worst loss is about 28 spots lower than Mississippi State's worst loss. Mississippi State was the other team. I did forgot to mention that. Um, was the, their worst loss to was to West Virginia at home by five or by six, and UCLA lost to USC by two in double overtime. So what I see there is the fact that UCLA was on the road, and it took double overtime for them to lose. I think that, like. I almost chalked that up as a tie in my head instead of a loss. And I, that's fair. And they also didn't have Michaela Onionware in that game too, right. which the committee does look at that because I'm pretty sure they look at, you know, what they're, you're actually expected to have on the floor for yeah. the tournament. So, and Mississippi state, their strongest case really, because their best win is LSU who was ranked at one point, but is mm-hmm. now the 41st team in the nation in our rating, their best case is that they've lost by a combined seven points to South Carolina and Stanford, which in my eyes, like that's a very strong case, but UCLA has beat four teams that are ranked higher than Mississippi state's best win. And I think when it comes to seeding, I think in my opinion, the mindset to go in with is accomplishments not projecting future games. I think the AP poll is about projecting future games, but seed lines in tournaments, I believe, should be based on accomplishment. Like, otherwise, what's the point of playing the season? Right, yeah, it's resume. Um, yeah. Which is why, you know, those strength of conference games and stuff matter. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I can and, see the argument going either way on those, which I guess makes sense why they're back-to-back. <laughs> yeah, so... According in the NCAA's release, they have Mississippi State at ten and UCLA at eleven. I have Mississippi State as low as twenty second in my most recent ballot, oh, wow. which is like shockingly low compared to I think the AP poll has them at eighth. <laughs> I just I know they played so well and so close to uh, South South Carolina and Stanford, which were road and neutral games. But I just, to have more faith in them, I need to just see one top 25 win. And that just isn't there yet. That's fair. I think that's a fair part point. For me, they kind of passed the eye test from watching that, especially the South Carolina game. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I can I can understand that thinking. And I just, for especially for uh, NCAA tournament stuff, I just go the other way with that. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, agreed though that thoughts on kind of the you know they released the seed list but then they also kind of bucketed it into the four regionals any instant reactions to that um so I I had the regions in my little note sheet and then I deleted them and And, because I was trying to like clean up make everything look nice and nice columns and stuff in the spreadsheet and now I don't remember what regionals each team is in that's okay. I can run down them for you. Okay. Everyone listening doesn't remember off the top of their head anyway. So in Dallas, you've got Baylor as the one, Stanford as the two, Gonzaga as the three, and Arizona as the four. In Greenville, it's South Carolina as the one, NC State as the two, UCLA as the three, and Iowa as the four. Portland, you've got Oregon as one, Maryland as two, 
Mississippi State is three and DePaul at four. And then Fort Wayne is Louisville at one, UConn at two, Oregon State at three, Northwestern at four. Hmm. So what I'm hearing there, what I kind of noticed is Maryland being out west. That almost to me seems like it's like a offsetting the fact that they're the last team in that seed line and maybe counteracts the difference between being a two and a three. Cause uh, if they were a three, they would like, if they moved down one, then they'd get the best spot at three. Right. So I think that that kind of evens out that maybe they're a little bit too high, but also they travel like really far for a two seed for some reason. So yeah, I think you've definitely noted, noticed like the geography preference when you look at this because yeah, it's definitely not your you know best number one lined up with their lowest number two and so on. Um, but I think that's also it's partially geography, and then I think it's also partially the nightmare of the fact that there's so many Big Ten and so many Pac-12 teams in the yeah. top four seeds that they're trying to not put into the same like regionals that it's just a mess. Anyway. Yeah, and last season when you and I were working on the bracketology stuff, there were so many times where one of us would finish it up and send it to the other, and we'd go, oh, there's this conference dispute, and then we'd have to fix it, and then that would open up a new dispute. And those, those like, uh, that they can't meet in the first round or um, if they've played, and they can't meet until the second round or if they've played twice and all yeah. that, like, weird stuff, it just complicates things, and... You get procedural bumps down by the last four in, and it's surprisingly complex for anyone who hasn't like gone in and tried to do it themselves. Right? <laughs> um, you you just can't, you have people like uh, asking Charlie Cream questions like, "Oh, why why is this team here? Why is this team there? Like, why why uh, is Team X playing so far from home?" And it, they're there are like a thousand moving parts involved and everything like can line up like three different ways and they have to find one of those three ways that works basically. Yeah, exactly. Especially with the top four seeds. I think the rule is that like they can't, the top four seeds, if the, they're from like the same conference, they can't meet until like the regional final. So you right. can't have like a one and a four from the same conference or two or in th- a three from the same conference in any of these regions. And when you've got what, four five pack 12 teams yeah five pack 12 teams three big 10 teams it becomes a nightmare really fast yeah i'm pretty sure what they try and do if possible is to keep uh i think it's no more than two teams from the same conference in one region so anyone who has eight or more then they have to like then it gets even trickier because then they have to figure out okay, which region is going to get the third team? Is it going to be a lower-seeded team? Uh, and they're going to get, like, maybe a bump that, like, a two or a three seed isn't getting um, just because of the way it pans out? Or are they going to have to break one of their rules and have, like, a one, a two, and a three? Or not, it wouldn't be that, but, like, something like that. And I forget, there is a conference... I think, I think the ACC had issues with that last year when we were working on bracketology stuff where they had just so many good teams that were up in the top four seed lines that were tricky to maneuver. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it was last year. Now this year it's the, the Pac-12. The Pac-12 yeah. yeah, but the Big Ten's got a handful up there too. I mean, and there's still two ACC teams, two SEC teams. So yeah. it's kind of all issues all over with trying to make sure that all that stuff aligns. Which So I think when a lot of people are like jumping to the locations being favorable to one team or favorable to another, it's probably more of a like conference alignment in the bracket than anything right. else. Yeah, they're kind of forced at times to make unpopular decisions because it's the only way the rules will allow it to happen so right yeah just looking at something like people are probably going to complain that UConn's you know the number two in Indiana which is probably the best travel for them right uh, well if you put NC State there then okay well Louisville is also ACC so that's an issue you put Stanford there well then Oregon State's the three so there's two Pac-12 teams you put Maryland there then you've got a two and a four for the Big Ten so there you go that's why UConn's there so and and there's also rules about like the sum of the top four seat like the, the 
what is it called? Like the S the S curve rank or whatever. Yeah. So like, like the the for those who don't know, the one line has the one, two, three, and four, and those values are added up, and con or each region has to be balanced in a way where like the difference between like the strongest and the weakest conference by that measure has to be like within some range. So. In a perfect world, they do one, two, three, four. Go with, uh, go with eight, seven, six, five, and then kind of do a snake like that. But because of ge- geography and conferences, they can't right. make it work like that hardly ever. So, exactly. So yeah, it's they do try to make it as balanced as possible with all those rules. But yeah, there's still lots of rules about conferences and stuff, which makes sense too. Like, I mean, yeah. if you're Oregon and Stanford and play each other twice in the regular season and then you play again in the conference tournament, you don't really want to be playing in, you know, early stages of the NCAA tournament or the, you know, regionals either. That's not really fair. Right. So. And it also comes down to tournament units, which each conference gets a certain number or a certain amount of money on like a rolling basis based on how many individual games their like members play in. So the ACC doesn't want to have two of their teams face each other in the first round because then only one of them can advance. If you split them up, then everyone has the fair chance to advance as far as possible before meeting another team in your conference. Right, exactly. Because otherwise you're, you're dooming one team to only have one of those teams advance, whereas if you split them up, then you have more units at play. And it works for every conference and some of the mid-majors and uh, some of the like low majors and mid-majors that those units from like one win can like massively boost the conference's budget significantly. Right. Like, yeah, like whenever one of those mid-major teams goes on a roll, <laughs> everyone else in that conference is rooting for them because that's, that's money in your travel and your amenities and just all that stuff in future seasons. Exactly. Yeah. So it's important. Yeah. Any other initial reactions you want to talk about on the bracket? Um, that's really it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you're listening. Also, if you like what you're hearing here, make sure you're checking out our articles, our social media, and the stats site at herhoopstats.com. Lots of great stats there heading into kind of the final month of the NCAA women's basketball season here, and it's just $20 a year to subscribe. Thanks again for listening.
Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So, do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.